Welcome to the Tamarind Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarind Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth. Welcome to the Tamron Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Kirby Rossbach, and I am your host today. Today, we are discussing the important topic of succession in cultivating family leaders. I have my esteemed guest is Josh Gentine, and he's a member of a family you probably might have heard about, um, but I'm going to let him tell you more about himself. And he is the founder and president of Bench Consulting. So, Josh, welcome to the Tamron Learning Podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. So let's dig into this topic of succession in cultivating family leaders. Can you tell us a little bit more about you, your family background, and how you came to do this work? I came to do this work by living through the work. Um, as, as you alluded to, family business, grew up uh, in a family cheese company called Sargento Foods, which was started by my, my grandfather in 1953. Actually, my grandfather and his partner, Jim Sartori, uh, another esteemed cheese company. Um, so some people don't know the, the background, the genesis. It was Sartori and Gentine, Sargent, and then we sold Italian cheeses. So they added an O at the end to uh, to sound Italian and Turns out it worked. <laughs> Marketing matters. So um, I grew up as a as a member of the third generation. Um, my father and his brothers all worked at the company, um, and it was just a part of my DNA. I mean, uh, we'd go down and play hide and seek in the factory when we were growing up, which you could never do these days. But it was fun when we were growing up. Um, so I, I lived that sort of Sargento experience and. I was always the uh, the kid who had aspirations of going back. Uh, I wanted to, to follow in my father's footsteps. Uh, when I was young, I ended up going off to, to college um, at Notre Dame, which we'll come back to. It, it has um, relevance. So I went to Notre Dame, studied finance, sort of did all of the right things, but it never felt like the right click for me. And, and I always questioned it. And part of why I questioned it was I was also in the back of my mind without telling anybody um, also interested in the seminary and being a Catholic priest. And it was not something that I ever wanted to admit because it was just kind of counterculture. And um, I played football in college and you, you weren't going to be a big, tough football player and then go to the priesthood. Like it just didn't fit. And we had this family company. And, and in many ways, I felt, um, you know, not it, it isn't a knock on my father, but I certainly felt an awful lot of pressure to go back. And he made it very clear that he wanted me to go back. Um, I've got a twin brother and an older sister. They were not on that path. And so I was sort of the one in our family who was who was going to come back if anyone was. Um, and so I did some entrepreneurial things after after undergrad. I always was thinking about the seminary in the back of my mind. Um, and what was interesting is I had this chocolate company that I had started and and it it, it was failing in the middle of the of the 2008 recession, and I was like, you know, 
I've got to just, I got to go to the seminary. I got to do this. And so I applied to the seminary and I didn't get in and talk about like the low of lows of my life. I'm like, I'm a good normal dude and I can't get in the seminary and I'm closing my joke company. Like, um, I had been dating a girl. So they said, Hey, Josh, why don't you wait, come back in a year. So, um, as a part of our family participation plan, which I'll talk about later, um, we have a we have an item that talks about getting a, a master's degree, an MBA, if we're going to come back and be an officer of the company. And so um, trying to straddle the two worlds, um, I decided, all right, let me go get an MBA and then and then I'll figure it out. So I went down to Chapel Hill, spent two years getting an MBA uh, with the sole intent of going to Notre Dame. Uh, and that's what I did. So I graduated, went back to Notre Dame, uh, entered the seminary. And a year into that experience, realized that that really wasn't where I was being called. And so I left, I joined Deloitte Consulting, um, not the normal transition out of the seminary into global M&A work, but um, did that, um, joined Deloitte. I spent, uh, I spent four years doing M&A and global talent. And it was at that point that I realized, okay, I need to, I need to make a decision. And, and, you know, I was having conversations with my dad and, and the board about what are my interests, where am I going with things? And at that point made the very conscious decision, no, I'm not going to come back. This isn't, this isn't for me. And Sargento at that point was, it, you know, and, and is a very large organization. And I feel like I have a lot of my grandfather's DNA in me. And Honestly, Kirby, the hardest decision, one of the hardest decisions of my life was telling my dad, hey, I'm not coming back. And, and the implications of not coming back were also, I'm not coming back to Plymouth, Wisconsin. And my sister was, was living abroad. My, my brother lives in Vermont. And so in saying no to this, I'm saying no to sort of my dad's aspirations for me. I'm saying no to the community that I grew up in. Um, and, and that was hard, but at the same time, I knew I had to make the right decision for myself. Otherwise, I was going to be miserable and, and frankly, not a good leader. And so uh, I said no, did my thing um, with, with Deloitte. I ended up joining Sargento's board uh, about that time. And um, now I get to serve as a, as a member of the, of the board of directors. And um, it's neat because I can still be involved, um, but I get to do what I love, which is now helping families navigate those exact same dynamics that I had. And um, getting into this work was really um, the, the product of, I would say, kind of the emotional challenges. Um, I did everything right from an, from an execution perspective, maybe other than joining the seminary, <laughs> which, which did not. But um, I think I did, I did, all of the things that I was supposed to do, um, and and yet it was a very very difficult decision. And so uh, now I get to help families navigate those dynamics and and hopefully help next gens find their own path, um, whether that's back into their families' companies or or not, and also help the senior generation, the leading generation, navigate those conversations in a way that's going to help create stronger families versus breaking them down. Oftentimes what I see is um, those difficult conversations don't go well and, and it creates fissures within the family. So that's why I do what I do, Kirby. <laughs> that's the I know, right? We all are brought to this work, usually inspired something by our past. I know I certainly have been. And I, one thing I want to pick up on is um, had a, I had a similar conversation earlier today with a family member of a very well-known family 
Um, and, and I gave him props for the courage to actually have great enough self-awareness that he needed to go on his own. Like he needed to spread his wings. And that is, that is not an easy choice for a lot of up and coming rising gen family members to make when there is tremendous pressure within the family system to track in a role. Tell us more about what happened in the succession of your family's maybe leadership or ownership or business management. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about the backstory and I get it why you didn't decide to stay in it, but what was the expectation from the family and what was the story and how did you end up resolving it? If you left, then who, who fell into that role that you didn't fill? Yeah. Uh, well, fortunately for me, my cousin Louie had much more experience and, and inclination to, to ultimately go back. And and he, as as my older cousin, he was leading the way and was already back at Sargento. So in, in many ways, I didn't have to play tip of the spear um, because Louie had already done that. We already had that succession plan in place. But um, to answer your question, it started, if, if I remember correctly, it actually started when I was in high school. We started to have these conversations when we were, when we were quite, quite young. And I think it's, um, I give a lot of credit to my uncle Lou and, and my dad and my uncle Larry um, and, and our executive leadership team and our board for saying, hey, let's, let's figure this out before it becomes an issue before we have these challenging dynamics in that sort of cousin consortium generation. And so um, through high school, through college, um, they had a very methodical process that they followed as a part of that succession planning process. And it was really led by um, an outside consultant, Dean Fowler, who has turned into a mentor of mine, a great practitioner and, and now a business partner of mine. Um, Dean, I, I remember meeting Dean when I was young and he was the one who was guiding those conversations for us and helping us tee up what does this process look like and how do we make sure that it goes as smoothly as possible? And I think to Dean's credit and then also to, to the family's credit, the scene, to, to the leadership generation, um, they were very intentional about the way that they operated. And, you know, in hindsight, can you say that signing, you know, family participation plans in, in high school and early college might be a little young about how you're gonna live your life and, and what the implications were gonna be? At the same time, Kirby, I think it set the expectation that there wasn't going to be an expectation that you come back. If you want to come back, here's what it looks like for you as a family member, and here's what um, here's the values that we expect if you're going to be a member of the of the family in the operating business. And so we spent a lot of time working on that participation plan around um, how are we going to manage family members? How how are how are other outside uh, non-family managers going to manage family members? What are the expectations if you do come back? as a way to mitigate nepotism and as a way to create very clear guidelines for family members to say, hey, if you're interested, there's a, there's a place for you, but this isn't gonna be a free ride. And of my generation, uh, I think 17 of us, Louis is the only one who ended up back in an operating role. We've got some, some in-laws who are back, uh, who were back at the company, one, one is still there. And so in many ways, 
some could say, hey, you did it wrong because you only have one blood relative in that third generation who came back. Um, and I would say the opposite. I think we did it right. I think we gave our generation the ability to make the right choice for themselves by having real intentional conversations about what it looks like to come back or not come back. So. Well, what I like is that you gave a lot of responsibility back to that next gen group to self-select, but that also in a way helped you develop that succession strategy that would work for your generation, not the retiring generation. Um, Cause where I see succession go awry oftentimes is the generation who's retiring doesn't want to let go exactly, or wants to micromanage how the next generation ascends. And if it doesn't go according to plan, they kind of, it's a stalemate. Like they just stop. They're like, we're not going any further. Um, and and really in your situation, it sounds like you did have ultimately a successor who your generation could galvanize around and agree to and support. Yes. Um, but let's just, let's just for, you know, giggles yeah. sake, say we didn't have Louis or you didn't want to go into it or nobody put their hat in the ring. That yep. would give you a, another very clear succession um, pathway, which is, okay, we have to have outside leadership essentially lead. And that's what your generation was actually saying would be best for your generation, right? Yeah, and we made a very clear decision that we wanted to keep Sargento in our family. And so, yes, it, that's exactly right. If, if we weren't willing to come back, if nobody was willing to come back, we would have found a bridge CEO um to to make sure that we could get to the next generation and honestly kirby we may have that situation between g3 and g4 um because of the different ages and and so forth um we still have a commitment that we're keeping it in the family and um we don't know who may or may not come back in that fourth generation and so we may again have that situation um in in the coming decades I'm not sure yeah, and that's common, right? There, it's common where ownership might consolidate to one or more branches as it gets down further generations. And quite honestly, I also see some families at the later generations say, hey, you know what? We actually want to professionalize or just have professional managers. We retain ownership, but we're not active day-to-day -day managers and we stay on the board like you are in. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, going back to the family participation plan, We've also created very clear guidelines for family members, managing family members, and also um, uh, mandatory retirement for, for the CEO um, so that you don't have somebody who hangs on to the bitter end <laughs> and there is that clear succession. And, you know, that's often what I run into with a lot of my clients is, um, you know, there's an inkling, there's an interest in saying, hey, I'd like to take a step back. But in practice, it's very, very difficult. And depending on the size of the organization, it may not even be feasible. But having very clear roadmaps for this is the plan, here's how we're going to operate it. There's going to be some variables that we don't know, but let's build a plan based on the assumptions that we do have right now. And if those, you know, if if somebody isn't prepared, then you know, CEO may have to stay longer, dad, mom, whoever that might be. Um, but building out a plan that is best for the organization and the leadership of the organization and the family with recognizing, well, there's going to be some variability as we go along. So. 
Well, tell, uh, let's go there for a minute. Let's talk about some of the hurdles that might get in the way, right, of cultivating family leaders and having a smooth transition. What have you seen and what have you been able to do to help mitigate those hurdles from being impediments? I think, and I talk about this often, one of, one of the one of the blessings of this job and is in, in this work is that I get to help families and I use their business as the tip of the spear, as, as sort of the entry point. And oftentimes families take family for granted and, and they don't actually, there isn't an intentionality around communication, planning, shared values. Who are we as a family? And so I think as, as, uh, sort of a tool and, and some of the best practices that I look at for helping succession planning succeed, it's really starting at the individual family member and the family level. Oftentimes people are starting with their estate plan and they'll come to me and say, hey, we've got our estate plan. And my question will be, well, have you talked to your family? <laughs> because like without understanding the individual members of your family and where you as a family want to go, you really can't drive an estate plan because mm -hmm. that is nearly the product of conversations that have to start here. And so if I think about succession planning, it starts with real conversations. Yeah. It starts with real conversations. And I think it starts with creating, and this is, it's again, taken for granted. It starts with trust at the family member level. If family members can't trust each other in the room and can't trust each other to say what they really want to say, you can't get to a meaningful alignment as a family and sort of the rest of the system is in trouble. And so, you know, whether it's, I don't feel empowered to talk because my dad dominates the room or my mom dominates the room, whatever the situation may be. And so I start in all of my work, I start at the individual level and, and I work with family members and their executive teams one-on-one -on -one to understand where are they coming from? What is their experience as a family member or as an executive within the organization? And what are those dynamics like so that we can get to the core issues that might be holding the organization and the family back from getting alignment? And once you get trust and respect in the room, then you can have an open dialogue about where do we want to take this thing? And if you don't have that, you're going to get the wrong answer. And, and somebody's going to feel hurt ultimately. And so, um, again, I start at that root level, the individual level, then I focus on kind of what I, what I consider to the trunk, which is the family and having really good family dialogue and working through the issues as a way of creating alignment for the future. Once you've got alignment for the future, it's almost like the steps begin to fall into place because we know where we're going. We know what this is going to look like. Yes, there's some variables, but like, let's start to put this roadmap together and build the governance that's going to help direct things going forward. So um, to answer your question, I think one of the one of the best, most important pieces of all of this is really starting at the family level, family trust and dialogue. And once that communication is in place, then you can kind of move forward. So when we think about what family members need to be prepared to do to be able to lead effectively, how mm -hmm. do you groom or how do you help mentor, advise, or support families to sort of rise into roles or get prepared to um, lead in different capacities? 
There's there's certainly the low hanging fruit, which is the education, right? I mean, you got to have a great education if you're going to be taking over a, a, a successful family enterprise. Um, with a lot of stakeholders are that are relying on you to to take that seriously, right? Um, and then I think the the next piece is, uh, and this is a piece that is often missed. It's allowing that that individual, that next generation, the ability to fail. One of the one of the biggest challenges that I see right now um, is wanting to make sure the next generation doesn't fail because of the optics of that failure. But the reality is, it's in that failure that the next generation builds the confidence that is required to lead. And I often see next generation members in leadership positions, but when you dig just below the surface, there is an unbelievable amount of insecurity because they have been groomed perfectly through this channel and now they're in that role and whether it's deserved or not they don't feel it and unfortunately it takes sort of getting beat up in the real world just like the previous generation maybe it's the founding generation the founding generation got beat up in the process of of building a business right that's how they got to where they are and so the idea of plucking somebody out and putting them in there with this perfect pathway where they're not allowed to fail is a recipe for failure in my mind. And so um, it's the education, part of the family participation plan that we have and, and that I build into all my clients' um, plans as well is having outside experience. It's a requirement. It's not an option, it's a requirement. And you know, moms and dads always want their kids to come back and work at the family business right away. And you know, I appreciate that, I respect that. At the same time, my perspective is you're doing your kids a disservice by bringing them back right away versus saying, you gotta go work somewhere else. And that's where you really cut your teeth and, and have some amazing management experiences and mentors who will guide you and groom you and, and provide these perspectives that you can ultimately bring back to your family business. So it's the education, it's the experience, and then it's failure. And it's failure. You know, it's failure. And you know, you you provide depending on the level of, of decision and the gravity and impact of that decision, you make sure that you create amazing guardrails to make sure that somebody doesn't go off the rails and, and make some serious decision, wrong decisions, um, but you gotta allow them to fail. And you know, at Sargento, um, we've got an amazing mentorship program, which is so invaluable as, as family members and, and other executives are coming up through the organization to help them understand how do I need to, to, to operate, but also how do I need to be in the business? Mm. And um, those are just some of the tools, but my number one is failure. <laughs> well, I'm gonna add to your failure and say postmortems, like when you have like big missteps and mistakes, life happens, but don't miss that lemonade opportunity to take the learning from that and to really codify it. Because I, I often find that when people fail and they don't make sense of it, it actually hurts their ego and it hurts their ability to recover. So I look at failure so tightly connected to resilience. And the only way you get that resilience piece is if you actually train people to learn from what didn't go right, right? And how do I use this as a springboard to be better? Like, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna let this hold me back. I'm actually gonna help 
propel me forward. So I'm really glad I'm, I'm super duper aligned with you on the failure piece and um, having made many failures in my own life, I can tell you, um, I, they make you stronger if they don't kill you, you know? You know, and Kirby, as, as you're, as you were talking about that, it, it made me think as well, the, the senior generation, the leadership generation needs to have the right mindset around fail. Yes, they need to allow their kids to fail. They also have to like build in this sort of perspective themselves that like, it's okay. And like, I'm going to put my kids in those situations. And while it isn't going to be easy for them, like if it becomes a punitive thing for their, the succeeding generation, um, either because it looks bad on the senior generation um, or they're afraid of what it's going to do for, for, for their kids, uh, it just doesn't work. And so both sides need to be prepared to recognize that failure is a growth opportunity if done right. If done right. Well, let's, let's flip the coin and talk about what the retiring generation should be focused on or thinking about in order to have effective succession what what does the retiring generation need to do well to help the next gen rise i think it's a couple things um one you ultimately have to retire so <laughs> that's baseline um there's often this idea that um i know more than you do and so you're not ready and the reality is they too weren't ready when they became CEO, president, whatever the title is. And so this idea that somebody is going to be wholly prepared to step in and take over uh, doesn't work. And, and that's, that's an issue because they're just not gonna be prepared. And so getting the senior generation to recognize, hey, like they will never be prepared and the upcoming generation say you're never going to be prepared like you're you're going to have to learn your way through this and you're going to have your own style so there's there's that the style piece as well um yes the next generation might be prepared but they have a different style they have a different way of operating and so giving that individual room to breathe and to exercise their own style in in leading an organization and teams and divisions and whatever it might be is really important and you know if if you want a, a cookie cutter of you as the the former ceo it's never going to happen and so letting go of that expectation say hey listen how can i allow you to succeed in the way that you operate recognizing we got to do x y and z right i mean there's 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 some baselines right but um everyone's going to do it differently and so i think that senior generation mentally preparing themselves saying, okay, like they're going to do it differently. They're not always going to be ready. And I need to be okay with that and surround them with great people who can make sure that they don't fail too badly. And I think one of the, one of the missing steps is, is trying to hold on and keep it tight. And, and you might have your deputies that you had for years, if those deputies don't recognize that same dynamic and aren't willing to step in and guide and support that next generation, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. And so I think surrounding, and it's one of the reasons why 
I absolutely love whether whether it's a board of advisors or or a fiduciary board having a board there to help provide some insulation around decisions and to provide some amazing guidance for for that next leader who's coming in um, is critical. And and the reality is you don't want to just take guidance from your mom or your dad who used to be running the organization. You want that outside perspective. And so um, those are a couple of the of the dynamics that I look at. So Josh, as we wrap up this podcast on succession and cultivating family leaders, are there one or two takeaways or key things that you think really contribute to this success of the succession? Working on the family, work on your family, like spend time on your family. It's amazing how much time um, founders, CEOs, regardless of their generation, um, how much time they spend in their business and they forget that they have a family and yet they want that family to come up and, and run the organization and yet very little time and intentionality is spent um, building those relationships early on. And so I think um, that's, that's one of the biggest things. And, you know, if you can get your family right and, and aligned, it makes everything a lot easier in succession planning. And I feel like I spend a lot of time helping build the family unit and the family system so that we can do the work on the business. And the stronger the family, the stronger the business. So. That's, that's just a great way to close. So Josh Gentine, he is founder and CEO of Bench Consulting. I also know you've got a great newsletter that you put out. So I'm going to give a little plug to benchconsulting.com. Um, check it out. And thank you so much for being here today, Josh. You were a great luminary. And thanks for sharing your story. I really appreciate hearing from family members who've lived it. And you certainly have. And look what amazing work you're doing with other families today. So thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Kirby.